You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. My fault, you're a man. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And today we're talking about the fourth film in the Harry Potter series, 2005's Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Now, let's start off briefly with the IMDb synopsis, uh, which reads as follows. Harry finds himself mysteriously selected as an underage competitor in a dangerous tournament between three schools of magic. Do you think that synopsis misses anything important, Marcel? Um, I mean, there's like the minor thing of Voldemort's return, but like spoilers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you can't have spoilers in IMDb synopsis. That's inappropriate. Well, in that case, I guess it's time for Professor Time with Marcel, in which we all learn about adaptation theory. We have a treat today, class. We've invited a special guest lecturer today to help us make sense of this film qua film. That's right. Back by popular demand, it's esteemed guy who actually has a film studies degree, Neil Barnholden. <laughs> so excited to be back especially for professor time now you are the professor it's true we so the, the the professed has become the professor so i was reading an essay by film theorist siegfried krakauer about the idea of film as an art of itself just what what particular aspects film has as an art some arcane delvings I was looking for a way to breathe underwater for an hour. <laughs> and uh, this came up. This came up. The, the dodgiest professor directed me towards this. 
Krakauer says at one point, speaking about the idea of films as an adaptation, I'll just read the quote. Yet the public which feels attracted, for instance, by the screen version of Death of a Salesman, likes this version for the very virtues which made the Broadway play a hit, and does not in the least care whether or not it has any specifically cinematic merits. So, of course, I immediately thought about the Harry Potter series. (laughs) Because in our previous conversation about the previous film, I, I talked about you know, how filmy it was and how much I liked it as a film. And that seemed to be our general consensus, actually. It was better as a film Mm -hmm. than as an adaptation. But what I think is interesting is it does make me think about the ways in which the Harry Potter series is not really a film series, that it's it's Mm -hmm. sort of a series of films that are so intimately tied to a series of books. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about the numbers about this because I don't know whether the movies are technically more viewed than the books are read. I would sort of imagine so, but I don't know. Maybe that's something that our listeners want to research for us. Since we can never look that up. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So listeners, if you could just figure that out for us. We literally just finished watching this movie 20 minutes ago. And... My first impression of it was, like, somebody has taken all of the scenes from the book that are, I guess, the most popular or the most important, and just strung them together with no particular concern to creating any sort of artistic whole or narrative (laughs) whole or making any sense at all, Yeah. right? Like, if you didn't know the book and or hadn't seen the previous movies, this would be meaningless, yeah, that that was what I was thinking, too. And, and I was also thinking, if you extend the thought experiment even further, if this was just a movie, it would be rubbish. <laughs> I mean, people would have so many questions that, to the point where the kind of questions where I think people would just not ask them and they would just say that was not well written. Yeah. There are so many problems with that. At the same time, as a piece of a series, it also just like fails epically because it ties so poorly into the previous film and does not in any way prepare you for the fifth film. The only thing that this movie sets up is Voldemort's return. That's Mm -hmm. the only thing. It's like, oh, okay, so like this character comes back. I mean, I'm very comfortable with the idea that like a film is a particular interpretation of a novel and maybe it's not the interpretation that I agree with and that's fine unless it's a stupider interpretation, which I usually feel like it is and then I'm mad. This felt like a really stupid adaptation because I feel like it took out the scenes that are actually really central to what is happening in this book. You know, Hermione's burgeoning politics are actually really important. Um, Rita Skeeter as a character is hugely central. The problem of Cornelius Fudge not believing Harry is like in my reading the climax of the novel and all of that is gone to be replaced with super long dragon chase scene. The one central theme from book four that the movie does seem to be really heavily invested in is puberty and teenage feelings. Yeah, there's so many double entendres and visual double entendres. I wanted to say also in terms of that quote that I I don't think it's that the appeal of the Harry Potter film series is inexplicable or that, you know, they're actually worthless movies or something. But I just think this movie, it becomes very evident the ways in which it works are from the books. Mm -hmm. And when it sort of moves too far away from those or sort of adds these scenes, I mean, because you think it's a film it can do a chase scene and that's more exciting on a film maybe than it is in a book 
But I don't think that film earned a 20-minute detour into teen prom comedy land midway. That is like a whole big central chapter in the book. You know, the Yule Ball is a central thing. But the book does a much more convincing job of emotionally tying together the coming-of-age story of these young protagonists with the trials, the literal trials that they are going through Mm -hmm. in order to win this cup. And that becomes very clear so that the emotional stakes of the Yule Ball actually do seem to matter, Mm -hmm. even in the midst of what is a much more high-stakes sort of political plot. Absolutely. Like, the chapter when Harry learns that he has to get a date to the ball is called The Unexpected Task. So the book does a beautiful job of juxtaposing the everyday regular anxieties of being a teenager with the literal trials of staying alive when you know that there are forces and people and possibly people within these walls who want to murder you. I also feel that the the only point where that worked for me is actually at the end where Hermione says, oh, everything's going to change now. And it's, you know, ambiguous as to whether she's referring to Voldemort or sex, indeed. But... In that moment, I don't think, oh, that ties everything together, of course. (laughs) No, what you think is, huh, that's the only scene in this movie where it doesn't feel like the things about puberty are just a bizarre distraction. Like an unusually unfunny episode of Wizards of Waverly Place. Unusually. And what we were having this conversation before we started recording about how how much it feels like they decided they needed one scene where you see the emerging romantic relationship between Hermione and Ron and one scene where Ron and Harry are fighting about Harry's fame and one scene where it looks like Karkaroff might be a bad guy. And there's just one scene for everything. <laughs> I think that this is probably just bad directing, but there's no like you don't get a sort of level of emotional or subtextual continuity from scene to scene so that once it has been established via text that Hermione and Ron have some interest in each other, that just never comes up again. They don't even exchange a glance. There's just nothing. You just never see that. Once you've seen that Karkaroff was a Death Eater, he literally disappears from the plot. (laughs) You don't find out what happened to him. Like, well... He was a red herring and he did his job and now he's literally gone. (laughs) Although I do have to correct you because there is the one weirdest thing in the entire movie that we noticed at the beginning of the third Triwizard test. Karkaroff is in the background apparently using his little finger to gently stroke... No, no, I can't even. I can't even get this out. He's gently stroking the back of Victor Crumb's head. It might have been Crumb's ear. It's hard to tell because because at the beginning Dumbledore's in the front talking, and in the background Karkaroff is standing with his hands on Crumb's shoulders, and then Dumbledore's head moves such that you can't quite see them anymore. You just see Karkaroff lift his hand and start to do something with his. It's pinky. very clearly pinky extended, <laughs> and it's whatever he's doing. He's making these little circular stroking motions, you know. So, so what the fuck was that supposed to mean? Is that like was that an accidentally caught in the background? Like maybe the actors playing Karkaroff and Crumb were having an affair, because it remains fundamentally unclear to me what happened in the maze. So, like, in the book, Barty Crouch Jr. disguised as Moody is, like, in there 
Like he's cast the Imperius curse on Crumb and is using Crumb to take out the other companions. Yeah, or, champions. Champions. <laughs> companions. <laughs> sorry, sorry, wrong wrong franchise. Uh David Tennant was in this and I got really confused. Um <laughs> can't. But then that never comes up. That's never said in this movie. And at the beginning of that final task, Dumbledore has this whole monologue he gives about how the, ma- the thing that the maze does is like change you. Mm-hmm. And there's no actual obstacles in the maze other than like some grabby vines. And then we see Crumb, who has like obviously turned evil and his eyes are all whited out, which causes us to sort of like that can't possibly be the Imperius curse because everybody would be able to yeah. see you were under it all the time. Yeah. And then later Harry almost lets Cedric be pulled away by the vines, which sort of implies that maybe the same thing in the maze that changes you is impacting him. But then it would make no sense. Like in the book, when Crumb sees Harry, he doesn't attack him because Harry needs to get to the goblet. But then if, if it's the maze that's doing it, that then doesn't make any sense. So then part of me was like, was that Karkaroff doing something to Crumb to make Crumb evil? Was he... Could any? Could, do either of you have any idea what happened? I actually still don't know in the movie if it was Karkaroff who put Harry's name into the... Because we actually don't know if Karkaroff... It's not actually clear what he was doing in that earlier scene where he was acting outrageously shifty for the benefit only of the cameras. And then he disappears in the end of the movie. And when Harry says... Crouch is disguised as Moody, and Harry, I think, confronts him with the idea that he put yeah. Harry's name in the cup. He kind of shrugs it off. It's not actually really clear if he did. He neither confirms nor denies it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so even thinking back on what we do know from the movie, I really don't know what was going on there. I mean, and in this weird pinky ear stroking thing is weird but actually if you notice that and you did think Karkaroff was evil yeah. you might think that you were you know seeing him enchant crumb or something honest to god if i had not read the books and was just going on the movie i think i would be pretty sure at this point that dumbledore was the real villain <laughs> because he uh, he's so suspicious and it's so suspicious that harry's name gets put in and then mcgonagall's like well, fuck the rules. We make up the rules. Just take him out. He's a child. This is dangerous. And then Dumbledore's like, no. <laughs> no, I want him to stay in. For no reason, I'm going to go with Snape on this one. Snape, who I know basically wants to kill this kid. <laughs> and, okay, so let's continue with this theory, because then we visit the Ministry of Magic in the Pensieve. Mm-hmm. And... Karkaroff is there as a prisoner and gives evidence that Severus Snape is a Death Eater. And then Dumbledore stands up and is like, oh, no, it's cool. I've already given evidence that, like, he's fine. He's on our side. So all signs in the movie point to Dumbledore being a Death Eater, (laughs) along with Snape and Karkaroff and Barty Crouch Jr. disguised as Alistair Moody. So the only person who is not a villain is Professor McGonagall. So maybe that's a choice. Maybe we can get more into this in the next segment, but maybe that's a choice that Gambon is making? Dumbledore actually says, Snape is no more a Death Eater than I. (laughs) (laughs) Which is always the sign that you're both Death Eaters. (laughs) I I have no idea if he says that in the book, but certainly when it comes up in the movie. We, we do know that Michael Gambon didn't read the books 
So he had no idea what Dumbledore was supposed mm-hmm. to be like. So f- as far as he knows as an actor, maybe Dumbledore is actually Voldemort's like sidekick. Or or maybe Voldemort is Dumbledore's sidekick. Like it's all unclear. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. all signs in this film point to Harry trusting the wrong ass people. Okay, may I change the to- topic for a moment? Sure. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the minisode. Um, during which one of our Urspell <laughs> listeners, Andrew Bretz, asked whether he was a bad person for not being moved by Cedric Diggory's death. <gasps> there, there are moments in this movie that I feel like things are done really well, right? And I think we all had that sort of, like, as a whole, the movie is sort of a shit show. But there are moments that I think are really effective. And I thought the treatment of Cedric Diggory's death was, was really well done. Like, in the book, it's shocking Cedric dies and then the sort of the narrative moves away from him but I feel like he stays with you as you're reading that scene because Mm -hmm. that moment's so shocking but in the scene in the film it's like Cedric dies and then the camera just moves away from him and you don't see him again and it you know it becomes really easy to forget that Cedric's there in this way that in the first moment I was like oh Andrew's kind of right like that death was really underwhelming but then that ended up becoming this really powerful image of how like meaningless human life is and what what an undignified pathetic death that was for this boy who through the rest of the movie has been the handsome beloved school hero oh you know always surrounded by friends and fans and always being celebrated and then you know this is his end like with Voldemort literally stepping on his face Mm -hmm. and it's actually like incredibly heartrending and like the whole scene and then you know the return the moment where they're brought back by the port key and everybody's cheering around them and harry's just there with cedric's corpse and i was weeping oh because i have a heart (laughs) andrew anybody who isn't moved by amos diggory Mm -hmm. just like wailing my boy like i just gotta i'm i Some some technical difficulties. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, speaking of scenes that broke Marcel during the movie, what has just happened right before that scene? Something bad had just it's, happened. Um, Harry asks Cho to go to prom with him. I'm just going to keep calling the Yule Ball prom. Yeah, that's that's cool, right? It's we can. It's episode. it's prom. <laughs> Cho has turned him down um, because uh, Cedric Diggory has already asked her to prom and she said yes but she's really sorry and so then the next scene is Harry lying <laughs> on the Gryffindor sofa clutching his golden egg to his chest staring off into space he looks exactly the way my cat does when she's really upset <laughs> I have tears it was, it, was, it was too full of feelings <laughs> so Neil is there any particular so for me it's the Cedric Diggory death scene is there any particular scene for you that you thought was actually well done? Well, I, I'm actually really tempted to say, actually, the same scene, the the part where Voldemort has this lengthy monologue where I would say Ray Fiennes is excellent. I would say that he's actually really riveting in that scene because he has, his body language is really engaging and really interesting, the way he's acting. And I actually think that the sort of tonal 
shift when they uh, when Harry grabs the board key and goes back into the thing is is so effective. Mm-hmm. It, it made me think because I was thinking up to that point, I had pretty much decided that the tonal shifts in this movie were not working for me, and then all of a sudden there was this one on purpose that's so good, mm-hmm. yeah. right? The whole scene sort of start to finish when they arrive Mm -hmm. uh, in the graveyard by the grave of the riddles and then when they come back into the sort of festive, brightly colored, loud world of Hogwarts, I think is just great. I think that whole thing is really good. While you were describing uh, what was so effective about the the graveyard scene, Neil, I was thinking about how effective I found the chaos at the at the Wizarding World Cup. I think that what that scene is also really, really well done. I'm disappointed at the things that this director chose to take out of that. But even with all of the things that were taken out of it, I still think that that scene does a really good job. And I think all of the actors do a really good job of portraying the terror and chaos that is coming um, with a bunch of hooded and masked figures uh, just rampaging around and blowing shit up and being terrorists. Yeah. Yeah, that scene is like a lot darker in a lot of ways, right? The devastation is much more widespread. The image of Harry and Ron and Hermione sort of walking through it afterwards and it's just like this sort of bleak blasted landscape, which is very post-apocalyptic, right? Is really like the stakes are established for you quite clearly right at the beginning. And a lot of the work that is happening in the books through the use of the muggles, through that moment of violence, ends up getting done for us visually in the movie through the fact that the Death Eaters are dressed like KKK members. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not yeah. that's not in the books. That's a, that's a sort of choice in the films to give them those pointy mm-hmm. KKK hoods. The stakes that that scene makes very clear to us because we know at that point that Voldemort isn't back and we know that they know that Voldemort isn't back. Um, but what it does make clear to us is that these are the people who come into power when Voldemort is a dominant force, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're watching the movie, you get this you get this very clear sense of what it's like when people like this have unchecked power. I also just wanted to say filmically during that sequence, uh, there's one scene that's a very long shot of the burned out uh, wizard ruling thing. And every time I see this movie, I think that's an astoundingly beautiful shot because it looks like a Goya painting or something. It looks like a beautifully composed, perfectly balanced, using light, amazingly painting of just horrible devastation and awful events. I just think it it always uh, gets me, actually, that specific shot. We don't actually know what house you're in. Shh, shh. Don't, don't tell us. We'll find out in the sorting ceremony, the segment in which we discuss Michael Gambon's inexplicable acting choices and other issues of casting and performance. No, but seriously, though, what house are you in? <laughs> I've always seen myself as a Hufflepuff, actually. Okay, okay. Real Cedric Diggory type, huh? Oh, that's, uh, that's not what I meant, but I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, you know. So we have a lot of we have a lot of characters to talk about, um, and I think maybe it makes sense to start with the ones that are new in this film, and then work backwards through some of our our other main characters. So can we start with the fact that David Tennant is in this movie? Oh yeah, I, I totally forgot that they had written Winky out of the movie, and so at and first, all, the all of there are no house elves in this movie whatsoever. No. 
And at first I was sort of like, oh, my God, like, what is this weird directorial choice that they're, oh, but wait, it's David Tennant, so it makes total <laughs> sense. And of course, he should be in the movie as much as possible. Yeah. He should have, I, I think he should have been in the movie more. There should have been several scenes of Alistair Moody turning into David Tennant, not Barty Crouch Jr., just David Tennant. <laughs> and then back into Alistair Moody. That would have that would have made the movie better for me. Do you think that the whole movie should have been David Tennant wearing Brendan Gleeson makeup as <laughs> Mad Eye Moody? Or one of those things, you know how sometimes in in movies where somebody's been transformed to look like somebody else so that in shots where other people are looking at them, you see what they're supposed to look like. But in shots where they're like looking at themselves or thinking or alone, they look like themselves. Yeah, you know, this is a technique yeah, a that's point, used in film. View, yeah, yeah, point yeah. of view. So they could have used a point of view technique. I mean, it would have spoiled the big reveal of the movie, obviously. <laughs> so what about extensive additional flashback scenes mm-hmm. where we just learn more about Barty Crouch Jr.? Yeah. Um, and just watch him doing his weird tongue flick thing, which was like really sexually confusing to me. (laughs) I really, now I'm picturing like David Tennant and Brendan Gleeson going like deep method with this role. And like, even though David Tennant's like not in like 98% of the movie, he like followed Brendan Gleeson around everywhere and like also acted out all of the scenes that Brendan Gleeson acted out so that he was like they were both because they are the same so so you get David Tennant to act out the scene and then have Brendan Gleeson do an impression of David Tennant acting out the scene for every scene of the movie David Tennant in, like, an entirely convincing, full Brendan Gleeson makeup, like, totally done up so he looks exactly like Brendan Gleeson, performs the entire scene, and then Brendan Gleeson comes on and redoes that scene exactly the way David Tennant just did it. Wow. Yeah, we should have directed this movie. Speaking of Mad-Eye Moody, how do people feel about... Brendan Gleeson's performance. I liked it a lot, actually. I mean, I think he did do a good job of... Uh, he, I mean, he, he did that thing where he has so many sort of ticks in terms of behavior and sort of vocalizing things that he immediately seems very suspicious and keeps that up the entire time. But I think he does do a good job of not making it so obvious what exactly you're supposed to be suspicious of. Mm-hmm. I feel like what's strange about this movie is that it does act as though you, the audience, have no idea what's happening and that it's a shocking twist except that large parts of the movie don't make any sense unless you know the book fairly well. Yeah, part of me wonders if that was maybe David Tennant and Brendan Gleeson being like, okay, so we're going to do this really well, even if the movie itself is going to be crap at it. So we'll do that. Um, I agree that Gleeson's performance was really consistent um, and complex through the whole film I didn't like it I didn't like this portrayal of Mad-Eye Moody I felt like his portrayal was a lot less PTSD so like Mm -hmm. Mad-Eye Moody in the book as we come to know him is supposed to be really fucked up because he's just been through so much um, and he's deeply suspicious of everyone and he's his Mm -hmm. like refrain of constant Mm -hmm. vigilance is what makes him refuse to trust anybody but in the film he's more just bonkers yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah. And then sort of a lot of things that are that are really central to how he's functioning as a character get written out, right? Because his suspicion 
means one thing for Moody and then means something else for Crouch mm-hmm. in a way that that maps well in the book and that is maybe it's easier to believe in the movie that this is just like Barty Crouch Jr. doing a really bad job of pretending to be a normal professor mm-hmm. and just being super yeah. fucking insane. Absolutely. Well, and I I think the only scene where that actually comes across that there's a difference between how Barty how Barty Crouch is pretending uh, to be Mad-Eye and what Mad-Eye is actually like is the flashback scene to the trial mm-hmm. where there's only a few lines that Mad-Eye has, but he does seem much calmer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He seems to be quite a bit different. I don't know if it's just asking too much because that's the only scene where the real Mad-Eye appears in any kind of consistent way, yeah. except when Dumbledore opens his year-long <laughs> imprisonment and Mad-Eye says, I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay, this is this doesn't really fit into any of our segments, so I'm just going to do this as an aside right now. Okay, so Polyjuice Potion is based on DNA, right? You, like, take a hair from somebody else. We know that, you know, within even a single strand of your hair, all of the complexities of your DNA are encoded in there. That gets put into the potion. It reads your DNA. It's going to know stuff about, you know, how old you are. So it turns you... Wouldn't it turn you into a unscarred fully limbed like your dna doesn't encode your eyelessness or the loss of a leg this is going to sound really obnoxious and i i i just want you both to know that i know that but like that's where the magic part comes in and that's why it's not say science fiction for example it's not entirely explainable by science i'm gonna put this raspberry in your ear (laughs) It reminds me of the the question that our erstwhile tech support posed uh, mm-hmm. while we were watching the movie together when he said, what's the purpose of the flash? So there's a camera mm-hmm. when Rita Skeeter's there with her photographer and they take photos. And so Trevor pointed mm-hmm. out that there are flashes and he was like, well, what is the point of the flash if it's going to be a, if it's going to be a sequence of like several seconds? Mm-hmm. Um, because a flash is only one one hundredth of a second. So it's only going to illuminate one one hundredth of the moment that you are capturing. So how can that how does that make sense? So this is where I would I would say that this is when you have to start suspending disbelief beyond <laughs> beyond the like, oh, there are mechanics that I don't understand, so I'm just going to forget about it and be like, no, I guess that's where magic just kicks in. Yes, absolutely. That is how genre works. <laughs> you are right. But also, don't people always talk about how Rowling's like magical world is internally consistent and logical? Isn't that like a thing people say about the magic in Harry Potter? I mean, we've we've said that people have said that. Well, it sounds true. We're <laughs> we're on the internet. We're probably right. <laughs> we're going to talk in the next segment more broadly about Bobaton and Durmstrang and their representation. But do we want to talk a little bit about their headmasters? Because one thing that really struck me is that in talking about book four, we talked a lot about the sort of sexual nonconformity of both of those characters, right? Um, that Kakarov is is clearly coded as gay and that um, Madame Maxime is the sort of like semi-monstrous figure. And it's really interesting to me sort of what they did with them in a few ways. Like Kakarov is, is entirely rewritten as um, just this parody of like Eastern European um, sort of brutality with his like gross teeth. beard and his gross teeth. Yes. But Madame Maxime, I thought, was actually quite interesting for a variety of reasons, um, including the fact that she is a full head taller than Hagrid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. 
she doesn't fit what I imagined Madame Maxime would look like. And I still don't picture this actor when I mm-hmm. picture Madame Maxime. I picture a woman who's much bigger, like in the same way that that Hagrid is a big man. Like Madame Maxime is just very tall mm-hmm. in the movies, mm-hmm. but she's not like a, a large woman. Yeah. She's just extremely tall. And I don't find that as interesting or convincing. And I also see her as being less feminine than I pictured this like very large part giant woman in the books. And so I I think I'm kind of disappointed in their casting choices. And part of me wonders if the reason why they went with like a tall, thin woman is because this is going to sound radical. The people who are doing the casting are like, as beholden to the same like fat politics <laughs> <laughs> or like anti-fat politics as like the rest of Hollywood. <gasps> like, does that make, could that? No, that's definitely not it. No, it doesn't make any sense. Guys, we need to talk about Dumbledore. I understand that Michael Gambon's delivery of Dumbledore's line, did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire is like famous. Like there are memes of it. It shows up on BuzzFeed lists about like the worst things about the Harry Potter movies. Like it's the sort of it's it has become the quintessential moment that people point to to explain why they don't like Michael Gambon's representation of Dumbledore. And I totally got why that was the case, because that was fucking bananas. (laughs) But more widely speaking, it feels to me distinctly like Michael Gambon is in his own movie that is not the same movie that anybody else is in and try as everybody else around him may to like convince him with their own performances that we're doing a different movie now he's like no 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 guys i got this no i i totally agree his his reading of things is i i think to me he well i think to me he feels manipulative he says things in such a way that seem particularly calculated and and i mean he's he's a good actor it's not that i think oh i'm just seeing him strain really hard to act i think with this dumbledore when he sort of puts on a public performance when he's giving speeches and things there's something disconcerting about it i find because it seems i don't know it it feels like gammon has generated some kind of a gap between dumbledore's actual aims and motives and how he's performing what's interesting about that is that we later on in the books find out that Dumbledore is a darker, more complicated figure than he mm-hmm. seems at this stage. And that Gambon's performance actually does blur the line between the villains and the good guys and does complicate Dumbledore's morality and make you very aware of the fact that he's scheming and that maybe he's using these children for his own plans in a way that's inappropriate. You always get the feeling that he's not telling you everything. Like, again, I could credibly believe that he was the villain of the series if I didn't actually know how it ended. But that performance choice, well, for one thing, it implies that Gambon knew where the series was going and we know he didn't. But also, within the movies, you still need to see him behaving towards the other characters in a way that would generate the kind of fondness that these children have for him. These kids would not like him. They would be scared of him. Also, all of the teachers at Hogwarts, all of the people who follow Dumbledore, like it it becomes a, a crisis for the ministry later on that Dumbledore has these people who believe in him mm-hmm. unfailingly. Mm. Michael Gambon's Dumbledore does not in any way inspire 
a following of faithful good guys. Yeah. <laughs> Death Eaters, no. maybe. Like, <laughs> like Snape. Yeah. yeah. But, like, it doesn't explain why someone like Minerva McGonagall, mm-hmm. w- who seems to always be, like, the calm voice of reason, <laughs> would would follow him. Weirdly, the movie series gives us a Dumbledore who seems sort of dodgy and not particularly trustworthy, mm-hmm. and a Voldemort who seems very electrifying and actually right. you absolutely understand why why Voldemort has this following yeah. in this movie because he's he's this great speaker he's actually kind of charismatic in a strange yeah. way whereas this Dumbledore it's actually somewhat puzzling as to why people would trust him unconditionally yeah. I actually think that their performances have a lot of similarities which is really mm-hmm. interesting like their their sort of mannerisms I think are really comparable mm-hmm. the sort of um, highly performative way that they hold themselves, that they speak to their followers. Everything is incredibly mannered, mm-hmm. right? Like, there is something charismatic about Gambon's Dumbledore, right? He's not off-putting. I think if you rethought him as a villain, you might look at him and be like, yeah. oh, what an intriguing, yeah. charismatic villain. I think if yes. he actually was a Voldemort-esque figure, right. you would be like, how fascinating, this villainous character who has this control over this whole school. Mm-hmm. Um, but it becomes very confusing when you're, like, looking for the good guy in Dumbledore and you're like, oh, this this man is incredibly unnerving. Mm-hmm. And then Voldemort comes on the scene and it's just, it's just Ray Fiennes being just so charismatic, so watchable Mm -hmm. so intriguing the the sort of violence under the surface of this beautifully mannered performance Mm -hmm. his face is covered in weird well it's not covered in prosthetics it's makeup and then they removed his nose in post no that's actually ray finds his nose oh sorry no that yeah sorry that's actually ray finds his face they just took off the mask he usually wears but it's like this weird sort of altered face, but there's so much happening just in his eyes. Yes. Like it's a really yeah. remarkable performance. Yeah. Guys, what I'm saying is that I'm pretty sure that in the world of Harry Potter, I would definitely follow Voldemort. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Well, I feel like the movie Voldemort seems uh, evil, but trustworthy. I mean, he's <laughs> he's quite open about his goals. He seems oh, very consistent yeah. about them. He really has the courage of his convictions. He doesn't actually really play games with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas Dumbledore seems actually shifty. I mean, yeah. and I, w- I just wouldn't describe Voldemort as shifty because he's very obviously going to do just what, so in easy. fact, he says he's going to do. I'm... Sorry, it's a hard time talking sure. while I'm also shoveling backyard raspberries into my face as quickly as I can. <laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, let's talk about the kids. And let's start with what we all agreed on at the end of this movie, which is that Harry Potter in the movies is a dumbass jock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Nope, that's all. That's okay. I- He's an idiot. I just 
the the scene in the library where he hears the clue and he figures it out and figures out I need to be underwater for an hour. The next scene is him face down in a book in the library. Hermione says there's got to be some way of figuring this out and Harry Potter's like, "What is there going to be some kind of spell or some, some kind of magic spell that's going to do this?" And then and then Neville comes along and it's like, "Oh, I know all these things about plants, Harry. If you have a question about plants." And Harry's like, "Uh, well like if there's a plant that uh would let me breathe underwater." <laughs> And then Neville's like, there is. I will tell you what it is, and then I will get it for you, you idiot. So Harry has insisted through the first 20, 30 minutes of the movie that he has no interest in fame or prestige or attention. Um, that he doesn't want this. He didn't choose this. You know, Ron's mad at him, but like, this is this is dangerous and anxiety-inducing. Everybody's being mean to him, and it's really hard. And then the second he does well in that first task, he is riding on the shoulders of literally. the other Gryffindors, literally, just like, who wants to see me Just, open this? And that's it. That's it. He's got the golden egg and they're like, open it. And he goes, oh, do you want me to open it? Do you guys want me to open it? And I was like, I can't hear you. I was like, this guy's such a dick. Yeah. And I do remember this from the books, but their, you know, problems with girls in the movie comes across like they they just seem like idiot assholes. Yeah. Whereas I do remember in the books, and, you know, probably because I was a teenage boy at the time, but you know, just, I felt a certain kind of empathy for where they were. And at least yeah. it seemed clearer to me from the books that they were basically decent people who were mm-hmm. trying to figure out worse in the movies. I don't know if it's just because you only hear it through dialogue and you don't hear Harry Potter's internal thinkings, but holy crap. It, I mean, it's just the shallowest teen sex comedy you know why are girls always traveling around in packs like you why why can't you ever get them alone like what the um so speaking of lines of dialogue and of ron ron has this line where they're at their one weird dancing lesson that professor mcgonagall gives them which is inexplicable um which does end with the best moment ever where all the boys are being too chicken shit to stand up and then the first one to stand up is neville and then the scene just cuts It's like, Neville, never mind. Uh, it, was very, it was a very confusing cut. But this book is, this story, this movie is, is very normative about gender performance oh, yeah. all the way through. And McGonagall has this line about how every woman has, a, or every girl has a swan inside of her just waiting to be let out. And then Ron, like, turns to Harry, and with the camera doing the work for us of objectifying this poor girl, focuses in on a girl standing on the other side of the room who is fat and says oh so blah 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 uh has something inside of her waiting to get out but it sure isn't a swan which was like really horrifying yeah. mm-hmm. and like i already wasn't liking ron in this movie like ron's already being a dick through most of this movie mm-hmm. and then that line was deeply off-putting and then he's just like he just goes from bad to worse like he's an asshole at the prom yeah are you thinking of that scene where hermione it's after the dance and she comes over to where harry and ron are just sulking and being dicks to Mm -hmm. their dates uh the patil twins right Mm -hmm. and then hermione comes over and she says oh me and victor are going to go get a drink do you want to come along and ron i don't know he just snarls something dickish i mean what do you want it's like what happened ron (laughs) what happened puberty yeah puberty and voldemort Equally evil forces. So let's talk about Hermione. 
I want to start by saying that overall Emma Watson is fantastic and phenomenal and her performance in this film is excellent. But there are a couple of scenes that I do not blame on Emma Watson, but instead on the director. And I feel like they took the things that are badass and awesome about Hermione and turned Hermione into mom. And this is the same thing that really bugged me in the third film when she has to constantly play tender mother all the time to Harry. So in this one, at the beginning, when Harry wakes up from his nightmare and Hermione is yelling at the boys to get out of bed and there's no explanation for why. It's not like, we're going to be late for the port key to go to the Wizard World Cup. Get the fuck out of bed. It's like, come on, Ronald. It is time to get up. Don't dawdle. Get up, Ronald. She keeps calling him Ronald, which is bizarre. No one else calls him Ronald, including his parents. And then similarly, when they're having that fight at prom and Harry comes and joins them and she's like, there you are. Get to bed, both of you. It's time for bed. And I was like, like, why? Why is it time for bed? Clearly there was no curfew because Neville stayed up. And like, like comes waltzing into the Gryffindor bedroom to the boys' bedroom later on with his shoes around his neck saying like, I just got in, which is like the fucking best. I love Neville in this movie so much. But like, did Hermione just send them to bed because they're being bad? Yeah. There's one other scene that I absolutely did not understand, which is Hermione has her makeover in this movie. Two issues with that. One, that makeover is not convincing because Emma Watson was already an extremely good looking person and didn't need to like put on a dumb ruffly dress to suddenly look beautiful. But the camera lingers on her like a she's all that scene. It was literally just the scene out of she's all that where like this nerd suddenly shows up in this beautiful dress and you're like, what? I never knew that you looked like that. Except in Freddie Prince Jr.'s position, we instead have Harry seen like that should have been Ron arguably standing there seeing Hermione look like that for the first time and being like, Oh my God, suddenly I'm seeing her differently, but it's Harry being like, what Hermione? Oh, she's so beautiful. It's like, this is very confusing. Is Harry in love with Hermione? No other suggestion. It's just the camera telling us that like, are we in love? Am I in love with Hermione? Who's in love with Hermione? I don't get it. Well, that would have been a way to use the language of film to indicate something about the story and what we should care about. The narrative. And I think for the most part, that just wasn't on. It just wasn't on in this movie. That scene would have read totally differently. That would have been one of the hints that there was something going on there. Oh, my God. We also talk about the recasting of her relationship with Crumb in this movie, because in the books... The point is, like, Crumb is, while he is famous, he is very socially awkward. He's not at all a good-looking person. Um, he's very, very quiet and sort of introverted. And Hermione and he sort of realize that they have some intellectual connection, right? That they mm-hmm. they actually like each other as people. In the fifth book, they carry on a lengthy correspondence and maintain a genuine friendship. Um, so there's something actually happening there. That, like, maybe she's seen beyond his fame, and his social awkwardness, and they've actually formed a bond. Whereas the implication in the film is that they're just fucking. (laughs) Because every scene where he goes by, for one, they've cast Crumb as this, like, very just sort of manly, like, I wouldn't say he's handsome, but he's very, like... He's a type. He's a type. He's He's very butch. And every time the two of them go by, he gives her, like, a smoldering look. And then later on, when she's talking to Harry about the relationship, she's like... 
you know, Crumb doesn't really talk much. He's much more physical. And then she sort of like giggles and you're like, you are 14. What is this 18 year old man doing to you? So that also happened. Like some of these things, like her sexual confidence for a 14 year old, I actually found quite engaging and in keeping with my sense of her that she's not ashamed of it at all. She's just like, yeah, me and this hot guy are dating. It's great. But then when Ron confronts her, she like collapses into a weeping mess and has to join the other weeping girls on the stairs of weeping. Yes, the traditional weeping staircase. Yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. In that scene, doesn't Ron. Ron says that uh, Victor's too old for her. Ron implies that Victor only wants to fuck her. And Hermione's like, what are you implying? And he was like, I think you know what I'm implying. You're fraternizing with the enemy or whatever. And you're yes. like, that's yeah, that's yeah. not that's, that's not, what, not you what you were implying. implying. Unless by fraternizing, you mean fucking. Yeah. <laughs> like everyone and everything else in this filthy filthy movie well it's like the director was like okay so this movie is like a sexual coming of age movie so let's just make every scene about dicks (laughs) because every scene is about dicks and it's very confusing oh man like that bath scene where moni myrtle is just like trying to look at harry's kid dick And I felt so bad. I can't remember the name of the actress, but we definitely looked up her age while we were watching it. And it was like, she was 40 when she filmed that scene. A scene in which she basically has to pretend to be trying to peep some kid dick. (laughs) Yeah, or Moody turning Malfoy into a ferret and then putting him into Goyle's pants. Also, uh, Crouch saying, I'll show you mine if you show me yours at the end of the movie. How is that in any way an appropriate thing to say? Given what's just happened. He's pulled his sleeve up so that you can see the dark mark tattoo on his forearm. And he says, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. And then Dumbledore pulls Harry's sleeve up and shows it to Crouch. For what purpose? (laughs) Crouch has already seen it. Yeah, yeah. He already knows what happened. So what is the narrative function of that, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. And then Dumbledore being like, let me facilitate this. <laughs> I thought when he said that line, I thought he was talking to Snape. Yeah. Because he knows that Snape also has the dark mark. Yeah, no. So he was like, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. Like, we know that Snape's mark has shown back up. The revelation that Snape is a Death Eater is really important. You know, in the question of whether Snape has this dark mark, like, that's central in the book. So I was like, oh, he's talking yeah. to Snape. And we're going to see that Snape has the dark mark. Or we're going to see Snape refuse to... Yeah, I, just, I feel like on every level... You know, physical staging, the delivery of that line, what happens in context, the fact that it's a double entendre for no reason. Mm-hmm. Everything about that scene, with that particular exchange, was so weird. And I just, I also just have no idea why he would introduce that as like, I'm not talking about my penis. No. <laughs> talking about the dark mark. If we're going to attend the Yule Ball, we'll all need new dress robes. And also to figure out what dress robes are. Let's head down to Madame Malkin's props for all occasions and see what she has to offer in terms of costumes, props, and sets. Okay, this thing happened at the very end of the movie where Dumbledore comes into Harry's dormitory for some reason. He's never done this before. That scene opens with a shot of Dumbledore's hand pushing open the door. And I noticed all of a sudden how many rings Dumbledore is wearing. (laughs) I love it. So Dumbledore comes in. 
and gestures to Harry's bed curtains. These are the same bed curtains that are in, around all of the Gryffindor boys' beds. And says, I never liked these curtains. I set them on fire when I was here a gazillion years ago. By accident, of course. <laughs> Senator Diggory's dead. <laughs> yeah. Accidentally murdered several of the other students in my year. <laughs> <laughs> they never found the bodies. <laughs> anyway. So we've seen those curtains because those curtains were on display at the, the Harry Potter exhibit that we went to see. And those curtains are beautiful. They're like a beautiful scarlet red with gold stars and moons and planets and shit on them. They're staggeringly beautiful. So for Dumbledore to dislike them suggests more sinisterness to me, I would say. That line also really struck me because if you got the audio guide at the World of Harry Potter, there's a little audio snippet an interview with one of the set designers talking about how long it took her to find the absolute perfect fabric Mm -hmm. for those bed hangings and how proud she was of the fabric that she had finally found, how it was so beautiful, it was so luxurious, and she felt like it fit so well. And I had this moment where I was like, whoever wrote that line, like, maybe they hated the set designer. (laughs) Like, because that's really mean, because she went to a lot of effort to find this beautiful fabric and to have, like, one of your main characters be like, oh, how ugly is this? Am I right? Do you imagine that there are just a bunch of deleted scenes where Gambon does different versions? He just, just kind of picks up the curtain and just goes, ugh, fuck, god, piece of shit. Where <laughs> he lies down on one of the boys' beds and says, these curtains are terrible, one of us is going to have to go. <laughs> Very funny. So, one scene that is so baffling, it's so There's clearly... One of the many scenes that are so baffling. It's one of the most clearly designed scenes in the sense that it's bringing together costume and set and special effects and choreography to make a very clear point. And that is the introduction of the other two schools, Mm -hmm. right? The arrival of the girls of Beaubaton and the boys of Durmstrang. Mm -hmm. This is all sort of filmic creation None of this is in the books. And that's fine, because this is the kind of scene that makes sense to add into a film. Um, Yeah, spectacle. Choreography works well in films, so I've heard. And so I get, in theory, what they were going for. But in practice, every single second of that scene made me feel like I was actively going insane. (laughs) One of the things that I really wanted to talk about when we talked about the fourth book was the function of the Vilas. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I was really disturbed that there's an entire species that makes men apparently unable to control themselves. What is really troubling to me about this film adaptation is that since Vila's don't exist in the in the film version, they've just replaced Vila's with French teenage girls. So French teenage girls in this film serve the exact same purpose. The way that they're shot at the beginning, the way that they keep going, every time they pass a group of male students, the fact that butterflies fly out of their like nostrils or something, I'm not sure. And the butts. (laughs) There is a necessary scene that just focuses on their butts as they are walking in sync down the hall. I don't like it. It makes me really angry. And I think the fact that they are supposed to serve the same function as the Vilas is made clear to us later on, which is the exact same scene that happens in the book. Ron has accidentally 
asked Fleur Delacour to prom and has similarly lost control of himself because either Ginny or Hermione, I can't remember which, tells everybody else in the room that he actually just like screamed an invitation at her and then ran away, which is what he does in the book. And he, the reason he does it in the book is because he can't control himself around her because she's part Vila. The fact that they've already taken this disturbing, imagined species and transposed it onto French teenage girls really upsets me. It makes me really uncomfortable and angry. Part of how the movie is telling us that they are Vila-esque is the fact that, for one thing, Beaubaton has been turned into an all-girls school, mm-hmm. and all of those girls are identical-looking, yeah. right? So that they seem more like some species of magical creature than, like, does Beaubaton have a strict blondes-only <laughs> admission policy? Yeah. A couple of brunettes. <laughs> yeah, like, is it like one of those really sexist airlines you hear about that, like, only hires you based on a particular sort of waist-breast ratio? I mean, Durmstrang is no less offensive, right? Oh, yeah. So we've just finished the scene where we watched, like, a bunch of girls sigh, and then we, like, got incredibly inappropriate close-up of teen girl butts, <laughs> and then... There was some acrobatics briefly, like mm-hmm. so there was just like a tumbler, like a Cirque du Soleil moment, <laughs> and then like some butterflies, and it was all entirely confusing. And then Durmstrang arrives, and they are all draped in furs and hyper militaristic. They have huge phallic walking sticks that they all carry, banging rhythmically on the ground as they walk in. And then there's like a bunch of fire phalluses. Mm-hmm. They're like snake dragons or something that just like zoom around them for a while being like we are men this is a school that's manly and the way that gender is getting coded through both of these schools is really unsettling and it's happening primarily not through script at all right it's not like Mm -hmm. these characters act in any particular way it's all happening through the sort of costuming and choreography and and the way they're getting sort of produced for us as schools those are also the weird sort of regional national stereotypes, right? Yeah. That it's actually just a parade of different kinds of stereotypes, which also made me think about the earlier thing with uh, Ireland in the uh, mm. the Quidditch World Cup, where they, they of course, of course, those Irish, they have mm-hmm. uh, fireworks that form a leprechaun that does a jig, and uh, mm-hmm. that's how you know that they're Irish. <laughs> I, I just wanted to note there's there's also another level of stereotyping going oh, on yeah. there of you know these dainty French women yeah. and then these like I don't they're not really they're sort of just Eastern European it's, yeah. it's yeah, yeah. Bulgarian I don't know I mean it's this very sort of Cold War thing right like this is sort of the fearful Eastern European and then the the effeminate French who mm-hmm. get, like let the Nazis take over their country so obviously <laughs> like. I so often when watching British cultural production, this, this strikes me all the time when I'm watching Doctor Who, like there's certain histories that appear to be much more present and urgent in the British national consciousness than it is for me. I'm like, are you guys still really worried about the Blitz? And this felt like this sort of this trope of Frenchness was like, and there's this scene where Hermione is talking to Harry about something Fleur said, um... It was when when Harry comes up out of the water and is like, oh, I finished last. And she was like, not last, Harry. Fleur finished last. She couldn't get past the grindilos. That's it. She does this, like, offensive yeah. imitation of Fleur's accent. And I was like, is this just some casual fun racism that we're indulging in here? It, Anti-French racism, which I guess is a thing. For, I know some Americans who have very offensive views of the French. 
So, I don't know. We also noticed while watching this movie, uh, maybe because the directing style was more pedestrian, that we were thinking more about the production design and the sort of design of sets and mm-hmm. props and whatnot. But there, there seems to be this old-timiness about Hogwarts, but that's a very specific kind of old-timiness. And mm-hmm. we talked about the phonograph in, in the previous movie, Lupin's sort of old-timey gramophone. And then in this one, there's this cartoonishly immense one at the dancing lesson and and we just sort of we because i think we had paused at that point we would have talking quite a bit about just why would it be that wizards would be okay with this particular muggle technology mm-hmm. i actually trevor hi how are you doing our erstwhile tech support <laughs> uh, sort of advanced a theory that perhaps in the early earlier 20th century, the boundaries between the muggle and wizarding world were somewhat more relaxed. So the wizarding world now has this odd... I mean, I, I don't know that it's a specific period. Some of it seems very Victorian, but I'd say like a general interwar kind of thing mm-hmm. going on. Really what we're talking about is just the production choices that, mm-hmm. that the designers of the film made, uh, which I also partially found interesting because as I recall at the Harry Potter exhibit the set designers did talk about trying to find an aesthetic that would evoke the stories that Harry Potter is evoking in a literary sense. So old school stories, that old sort of British genre of boarding school stories, which is also associated with this sort of World War II, 1930s, or Victorian kind of thing. And I I do think that really comes across, but I, I just, I find it sort of confusing then. And of course, the moment when that all fell apart is when the band that's playing the Yule Ball it seemed to be the wizard version of Good Charlotte. <laughs> yep. They seem to be doing moshing. Yeah, they're moshing at this pop punk band performance, and it also I think raises a lot of questions about the wizards who live in the Muggle world and who are very heavily rooted in the Muggle world. Their experience of Hogwarts is that they go from, I guess, the nineties into this bizarre pastiche of antique mall nostalgia <laughs> pre-war british thing where where your teacher has a gramophone in the classroom and plays you know hot swing for you <laughs> during these magic lessons where nobody is using a computer but there is an old-timey slide projector <laughs> and like why would you write with a quill like, yeah. why use parchment in a quilt? Like, we replaced that a long time ago. Like, pe- there's a reason why pen and paper turned out to be a pretty useful thing. Even pencils? Pencils have existed for 500 years. <laughs> I don't know why wizards are still killing birds to get their quills. Yeah. If there isn't a magical solution to this, then you're just using old-timey technology for no reason other than to evoke a sort of Evelyn Waugh kind of feel, right? It's just like we want the book to feel a little bit like Brideshead Revisited. So probably everybody should use a quill. I don't think they were even using quills then. I also think one of the funniest but sort of most baffling things is the business in the background where Filch actually has no idea how to run a gramophone. (laughs) I I get that he's generally not supposed to be particularly competent, but I mean, that gramophone is older than he is, but there is kind of a tension between uh, what the goal of the production design is and what actually happens in the narrative. Like, the actual world of the narrative is that it's the 1990s. (laughs) 
Yeah, that sort of reminds me, something about Mad-Eye Moody's first class, or sorry, you know, Crouch as Mad-Eye Moody's first class, where he's talking about how the kids have been told that they don't need to learn the unforgivable curses, but they should. Um, It struck me that one of the odd things about Hogwarts and it's just general wizard historiography is that they're constantly talking about what happened roughly two decades ago. <laughs> constantly. Like the defining events of the wizarding world all refer to things that happened around the time of the birth of these students. So <laughs> Mad Eye Moody comes in and tells them that they need to learn these curses and is clearly referring to the threat of Voldemort. Everyone's talking about who used to be a Death Eater. You know, people are rumored to have been former Death Eaters. There were tribes and such this was all you know uh what 12 to 14 years ago or so it just struck me as weird that the current events in the wizarding world are all deeply rooted in something that happened more than a decade ago there aren't really current events there's no current events and there's no long history either no right it's just like the whole world revolves around the past 14 years yeah i mean there is in the in the books but that gets written out completely from the films yeah I think the last thing we need to talk about is uh, special effects, because this is a movie that is obviously trying to do a lot of stuff with CGI. It is trying real hard to make the world look magical. There's a lot of dragons. There's some people. There's some licorice candies that come to life. There's a shark head. There's just like a lot of like the central scenes are operating through it, like Harry interacting with some pixels. And... It's clearly something that in 2005 they were feeling proud of. Because when we looked at the special features on the Blu-ray, they were like, a detailed behind-the-scenes look at the making of the Hungarian horntail. They all like specifically said that they were going to be very detailed. Like, <laughs> this is going to be agonizing. I hope you're ready. So obviously this is really important. And I mean, it hasn't aged well at all. And they've used it so heavily. Like, let this be a warning to filmmakers of today and of the future. Technologies that are advancing at a really fast pace, just, like, don't use them heavily. Because your movie's going to look really shitty in a year. The people, especially, looked like Harry was swimming around in front of a computer screensaver. I just remember this, but actually this month's this month's <laughs> Film Nerd Weekly, which you can buy the stands under the name Total Film, they had a feature, they do um, a sort of two-page spread about uh, special effects shots of the past, and the one this month was actually about the underwater scenes in Goblet of Fire. Oh, wow. And so they explained, and apparently that was the first underwater scene filmed in movies to extensively use CGI. I'm not saying this to excuse this, but like that was a special effects bonkers extravaganza on the cutting edge of what was possible in 2005 and so i read that article and i thought wow they did so much they built an immense water tank that was coated in blue screen on the outsides the actors spent quite a lot of time underwater filming these scenes there was an underwater green room so that they could go under the water and then come back up and watch the scenes that had just been filmed so they could adjust their performance um, apparently, Danny Radcliffe spent so much time underwater that he qualified for like a diving certificate afterwards. I mean, all of which is just total film nerdery appropriate to Film Nerd Weekly. But then when I saw the actual scene, I just thought they might as well, <laughs> they might as well not have. Might as well have just uh, had some Muppets filmed it behind a glass tank. Yeah. Just been like, ah, oh, we're underwater. Blorp, blorp. I'm 
picturing that right now, and it's so amazing. If they just switched in that scene to like Monty Python style, like two dimension sort of stop motion paper animation, so it's just like a little like Harry moving along, and then like just like a mer person being like, like I just that would have been that would have been perfect, infinitely better, yeah. infinitely better. Yeah. Yeah. Magical. So I believe, Neil, you said you were concocting a theory about the use of obvious ostentatious special effects in the Harry Potter movies. Yes, I I have a sketchy theory based on the notorious scene, which I believe is number 20 on our list of things that don't make sense. (laughs) Uh, Barty Crouch's first lesson, uh, where he's Mad-Eye Moody, obviously. Uh-huh. So Moody is describing these these three unforgivable curses, and he's because he is bonkers. He's decided to demonstrate them on this living creature, and he's obviously he's doing it on a spider, presumably so that our sympathies aren't totally skewed away from him. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you know, we're all familiar with this, right? Torturing a spider doesn't quite lose you everybody's sympathy, whereas mm-hmm. torturing a mammal of some kind, you know, would. But what struck me as really interesting is that at the very beginning of that scene, he performs a spell that causes the spider to enlarge Mm -hmm. and i was thinking about it throughout the scene because i was thinking what was the purpose of doing that Mm -hmm. i presume if i asked barty crouch disguised as mad eye moody (laughs) why he did that he would say it was to make the spider more visible right it's much larger it's much easier to see and it's every agony needs to be conveyed to these traumatized (laughs) preteens um teens teens. sorry i forgot we've reached that point (laughs) But I, I was thinking about it in terms of the audience and why that happens, because I, I don't think that spider is very good CGI. I think it's very obviously CGI, and I have a very difficult time imagining in 2005 that anyone had not seen better spiders <laughs> in a movie. But I was thinking that in the context of that scene, the way that that works is that it's not just that the spider is CGI and there isn't even a real spider. It's that it's underlined for us and emphasized by having it suddenly change size. Mm-hmm. So magic becomes the way of clearly articulating to us that this is not a real creature, that this is a fantastic experience that we're having. And I actually think that the overuse of CGI or the use of what I'm calling bad CGI, although who knows if there was better CGI at the time, is actually to delineate the fantastic experiences in the film, to actually slightly separate them from the audience. So when you're watching that spider you're not supposed to be focused on the fact that it's it's a spider, that there's a real spider on screen, or anything like that. And in fact, the scene is played for comedy, right? Mm-hmm. Him throwing the spider into the face of Malfoy is like, he has a spider mustache briefly. <laughs> Whereas if that was a real spider, you would be like, well... Someone like this director just put an actual spider onto this teenage actor's face. I think it's a means of actually underlining the fantasticness of what you're seeing. That actually it doesn't have to look like a real spider. That even if that spider had looked exactly like a real spider, the fact that it suddenly increases in size mm-hmm. would totally throw the realism of that scene, if we can like refer to such a thing. Mm-hmm. That actually in those scenes there's a reason for the audience to not be to be seeing a separation between the fantastic events of the film and the realistic ones. And I think that works when we're thinking about um, the fact that this is still kind of a children's movie, right? Mm -hmm. So then it takes those scenes that might otherwise be like really terrifying and just gives you a little bit more distance from them, right? They seem like a little cartoony, a little when he's being chased by the dragon, it's like, like the stakes don't feel as high because the dragon doesn't look 
as real, right? It's like none of this is quite real, which is then interesting when you compare it to that final scene with Voldemort, which uses very little CGI, very few special effects and relies extensively on Rafe Fine's creepy ass face. And that's, you know, that's something that like, I know that they removed his nose using also CGI, um, using surgery. Sorry. I say that it's my accent. When I say surgery, it sometimes sounds like CG, CG. Yeah, no, that was convincing. But yeah, in those scenes, like it's not relying on anything fantastical or magical looking. It's just like this guy and it's so scary. You were saying earlier that it's centered in what his eyes are doing in that moment. So it's not actually, he doesn't have a nose. That's creepy. The camera isn't, we're not focusing on his nose. It's his eyes, right? Which are actually Ray Fine's eyes. It's always interesting to sort of think about, imagine what, the Harry Potter world would look like if it relied less on CGI. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, that's also something that's differentiating the choices, the directorial choices to be made in this movie versus what Quaron did with the wizarding world. Because that one of the things, you know, watching the third movie, I was like, this is so fucking weird. Everything that's happening is so weird. I feel very upset. And then watching this movie, I was like, I remember when that last movie made me feel anything. Um, Cause this movie, I like, I had a really hard time, like feeling invested in a lot of the scenes in this movie because it was so CGI intensive and so bland and the, you know, the set design was so much less luxurious and complicated and bananas. And like the, in the third movie, Hogwarts is just filled with strange physical objects. And there's a lot of time spent just like lingering on those physical objects. And I feel like it is a much sort of grittier, more material, more visceral, like steampunky kind of mm. wizarding world. Like if Quaron had directed this movie, Wormtail's fake hand would have looked unbelievably dope. Mm-hmm. Not like he suddenly had the hand of the Silver Surfer. Great example. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you guys remember when we were talking about the third movie and I had mentioned that I really thought that Quaron's style influenced the later mm-hmm. directorial styles? I still stand by that, but I'm curious as to what you guys think. Yeah, I think that there's scenes where you can see gestures in that direction, right? Like the lounge or whatever that all of the champions are sent to right after they've been selected is just this room that is inexplicably full of like magical items under glass. Um, And it's like they don't serve any function. They're just there to be highly stylized objects in the wizarding world. Or like when Moody is teaching that first lesson... And in the background, or actually sort of in the foreground, and he's in the background, are all of these containers just full of bugs. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I agree. I think there's moments in the overall design. Because I don't remember that kind of stuff being in the first two movies. Mm-hmm. That Hogwarts was quite bland. Mm-hmm. So I think some of that quaroniness does come through. Yeah, I, I was going to say further on the treatment of space, I also think that this movie had a lot more tracking shots or lengthier shots the effect of which I think is to show the environment in more detail and to more clearly situate characters in relation to the environment. I do not recall that from the first two movies. I felt like it was fairly straightforward. You know, conversations would always be someone talking and then you cut to the person facing them and then they're listening and and whatever. Whereas in this movie, there were a lot more shots where you would be following someone as they enter a room and then you would move past them doing something and then you would the camera would settle but it would be a third thing happening i i can't imagine that it wasn't influenced by that i mean it can't just be a coincidence that that becomes really important because i think it's a much better way 
to have Hogwarts be an interesting place and actually a setting that feels really more vibrant than the first two movies. Any last thoughts? I do actually have a last thought, which was (laughs) one of the earliest things I brought up, which is a question for you two. Um, involving those, involving, (laughs) involving those Irish wizards, because the flag of the Republic of Ireland is flying at that World Cup, the Quidditch World Cup. Why do wizards follow muggle political borders? Why do they care about the existence of Ireland or Bulgaria or Great Britain as a nation when their existence, Hogwarts predates the existence of any of those entities. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. What is going on, guys? Marcel knows. I think in the film world, it's made pretty clear that wizards aren't particularly invested in nationality in the same way that they are in, in the books. Because in the books, we have that scene where Harry and Ron are walking by Seamus Finnegan's tent and Seamus is like, you'll be supporting Ireland, of course. And we know that Seamus is Irish, and so it's precious and cute and rude. And they're like, oh, of course. And then they walk away, and they're like, like, we'd say anything else around that lot. And it's, <laughs> and it's funny because, because the Irish are supposed to be so, like, hyper-invested in their, own, in their own team. But we don't really get that in the film, right? Mm. And even in that shot where we see, like, the Weasleys and Harry and Hermione cheering for the teams, they're wearing a mix of, of team swag, yeah. right? Yeah. So it seems like... They, at least in the world of the movies, they don't seem to care as much about national boundaries, which suggests to me that they never vote in referenda, that they don't fight in muggle wars, that they're not invested in, like, geopolitical boundaries in the same way, but that they nevertheless have to live within them because their ministry is always subsumed under the greater ministry or the greater ministries or whatever word it is that I'm looking for. I agree with you that they're sort of using it as like, sure, the national teams are just like arbitrary, right? So that they don't, at least in the, again, in the world of the movie, it doesn't matter necessarily who you support. Mm-hmm. Um, it isn't based on a kind of nationalism. It's just like, you know, we like Bulgaria because we really like Crom or we like Ireland because it has this other player we're really invested in. And muggle sociopolitical borders are just like a cute way that they can apply colors to their teams <laughs> whereas their actual you know the actual way that culture is divided right. in the wizarding world predates those those structures yeah. right yeah. so it's it's like not emotionally invested in the name of the street i live on but i still use it as a handy way to right. signify my address it reminds me a little bit of of how i feel when i watch men's world cup soccer or men's world cup football for our non-North American listeners, (laughs) Canada is never going to be a horse in that race. So (laughs) I have no investment, no like personal investment in any of the teams that play. But whereas in the Women's World Cup, Canada is actually actually has a team. I mean, I wasn't super invested. I didn't really care. This doesn't need to be in the podcast at all. But like the fact that Canada did have a team, my default was like, sure, yeah, hopefully the Canadian team wins a thing. And then they didn't. And I was like, whatever, I didn't actually watch any of the games. So it's fine. I can believe that. That seems like the most plausible answer to me because I was just thinking that that there wound up being a Republic of Ireland wizarding Quidditch team is that after the creation of the Republic of Ireland, wizards found out that the Republic of Ireland had been created. Mm -hmm. Some of them were in it. 
Some of them weren't. Yeah. Presumably a new minister of magic. Although I, it also raised the question for me of whether there was ever a Soviet Quidditch team, which I find extremely Ooh. difficult to imagine. This is my rambling thought to close this up. Durmstrang is very Soviet. They're coded very Soviet. So you have to assume the Bulgarian team is just like an extension of what used to be a highly successful Soviet Quidditch team. Yeah. Yeah. Like maybe nobody told them that the USSR broke up. (laughs) Nobody told the Wizards. The Wizards are still holding (laughs) on to it. It's entirely possible. Actually, I can see why. why. If you you were the headmaster of some wizarding school in Russia, you would receive that news with equanimity. (laughs) You'd just be like, okay. Yeah, fair enough. Yep. Where, where are we? <laughs> <laughs> what country am I in again? I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. Also, it's going to change again in eight years. So, like, <laughs> oh, who cares? Who cares? <laughs> you guys. Thank you so much for listening to episode eight of Witch Please. You can listen to all our previous episodes on our website, ohwitchplease.ca, or subscribe to us on iTunes. And please think about rating or reviewing us if you haven't already. That's the best way you can promote the podcast and help other listeners find us. And, of course, special thanks as usual to our erstwhile tech support and the robot of our hearts, Trevor Chow Fraser. Hi, how are you doing? Are you ready for the Twitter list? I can't believe we're doing the Twitter list. Thanks to Uterp's Delight, Chris and Morin, Surinoth, the Cleases and Amazons podcast, Basil, Andrew Brett's 001, Karinasaurus, Julia Blakey, Mara Dithering, that's a great name, Katie Hasenbank, Terry Lee McGarry, Pewter Wolf 13, Proletarian Arts, L. Bourgeon, Chris Duty, A.E. Lang, Alan Matley, Danecdote, DeBeckel, Escaletley, Daniloth, Holly Dunn Design, Physics Katie, Katerina Mary, Emily Hoven, Bookish Spoonie, S.C. Huggins, Hedwig8593, Mayus Teapot, M.J. Smith, Debbie Kinsey, Pra Chris, Rhea Duval, Kathy Van Orton, Ellen Ora, and of course, all of you who are retweeting and favoriting and following and listening. We do this for you because we love you. And before we let you go, we have an exciting announcement! <gasps> <laughs> We will be doing a live episode at the Edmonton Comics and Fan Expo this fall. Stay tuned for more details, but you may want to book your tickets to Edmonton now. It's also probably cheaper to fly now, so (laughs) definitely get your plane tickets. But also buy your tickets to the Expo now. I think that we're going to be on Saturday. If you have to choose a day, and you do, choose Saturday. In our next episode, we'll start our discussion of book five, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. But until then... Later, witches. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.